Good morning. Welcome to Emmett Audio. Uh, I'm walking the dogs. You can hear the rustle of my raincoat. It seems like it's about to start raining, so I'll try and keep things brief today. I want to talk about stropping before I moved on to hook knives tomorrow. So here's what I know about stropping. First of all, stropping will take your knives to a level that you can't achieve by sandpaper alone, even if you go up to five or 7,000 grit sandpaper, because stropping is the equivalent of, and I'm gonna make some stuff up, 15,000 and 25,000 for suede with compound and then smooth leather strops. <clears throat> and you just can't get that high meaningfully with sandpaper. The other thing about stropping is that um, no amount of stropping will make up for a poor job sharpening. You have to know what you're doing sharpening and you have to get the sharpening right for stropping to make a meaningful difference. You can't strop your way out of a dull knife in the sense that you can, but it will exacerbate the very thing that's making it dull, which is sort of thickness at the edge. So it will work for a, a short period of time, but eventually you will need to resharpen. Now, the thing that catches people up with sharp with stropping most often is too much deflection in the leather. And this is because leather that is squishy at all will have the tendency to wrap around the edge of the knife as it is moving across the strop. Just a tiny bit, but enough that it will wrap around that edge, which remember is being pressed down into the leather and will actually dull the very edge that you just spent so much time sharpening. So you want... Now, interestingly, let me back up a second. A tiniest little bit of this is probably a good thing and actually makes the edge last longer than if you didn't strop. But we're talking just the tiniest, almost imperceptible amount of deflection. It is easy to have too much. And I was just given a, uh, a strop kit that someone dropped off with me yesterday because they didn't, uh, it was just sort of part of their extra tools they wanted me to serve, part of a bunch of tools they wanted me to sort of clean up and pass on. And I got to see the leather in the strop kit. It was um, very, very thin. It looked like kid leather. And it was suede side up. And even though it was very thin, it was still, to my mind, too, too fluffy. In that I could press my finger, not my fingernail, but my finger down into it and see it deflect. And if I can do that with my finger, you know the knife edge is going to push down further still. Um, you can strop using compound on a bare piece of wood. <clears throat> That's what I did for a while. Just use automotive, um, sorry, metal polish on a wooden block. And that worked okay. Probably certainly better than using um, uh, squishy leather. Your two other options with leather is to either let's um, is to either use a very hard leather that has almost no deflection in it, or a very thin leather 
that has almost no deflection because it's so thin. The thin leather is the, the tack that Tom Scandian in Australia, Spoon Carving with Tom, has taken in that he's using kangaroo leather, which is extremely thin, but also extremely tough, stronger than cowhide. Even cowhide that's much thicker than it. Um, and the nice thing about it is the leather won't deflect. Now, in order for it not to deflect, it has to be backed with something extremely hard and precisely flat, which all goes into Tom's strop designs. The other route you can take is to go with um, very thick, hard leather. So leather can differ tremendously in how it feels based on how it is prepared and where on the animal it comes from and what type of animal it comes from. There's this leather called horse butt leather, because it comes from, I assume, the butt of a horse, <clears throat> that is, is prepared in such a way that is very hard and stiff. And I suspect that if you don't want to go the route of buying a strop from Tom or curing kangaroo leather, horse butt leather might be an economical choice to get some very hard, strong leather that's stiff enough that it doesn't matter quite so much what you back it against. You would still want to back it on something. Um, now, the other major design point when it comes to a strop is the importance of covering your strop when not in use. Tom's strops all come with cases, which is brilliant. But if you make your own, or buy one from somebody and it doesn't come with a strop, figure out a case for it. It can be as simple as wrapping it in a plastic bag or an old t-shirt. But you have to cover it, because otherwise your strop will collect grit just from the air sometimes, you know, dust in the air uh, will stick to the compound on your strop. And at other times, uh, if you leave it rolling around in a box with tools or in a, in a tool bag, it will get the grit that just accumulates from life on it. And then you're passing your blades through that grit. And you're actually doing more damage to your blade than good. The third thing that happens is you get compound from the strop itself onto everything it touches. Yeah, it's really raining now. I'm going to turn around. So you get compound from the strop itself onto everything it touches. And it might be subtle. It might be to the point where you don't think it's happening. But then if that stropping compound is sort of on your tool handles and then the compound gets on your hands, as you are carving spoons, particularly spoons with a high moisture content, you will find that your spoons are smudging. And you're not necessarily sure why. Probably it's partly due to stropping compound and just dust and grit in general on your tool handles getting on your hands. So wash your hands, wipe down your tool handles, and cover your strop. Again, it doesn't need to be fancy. It can just be a plastic bag. But keep your strop separate from everything else. Same with sharpening gear. Just generally keep it segregated from the rest of your equipment. So... When you strop, you want to use fairly firm pressure. So you need a system that will allow you to use firm pressure. 
You also want to trail the edge when you strop. When you use sandpaper, stones, it doesn't matter so much, but when you use sandpaper, a lot of the technique that I show, you're going into the edge such that if you were to angle the knife slightly differently, you'd cut the sandpaper. With strops, you want to avoid that possibility. So you always make your passes on the strops with a trailing motion where you, you are going away from the edge, not into the edge. And that's the most important thing to remember. I use a strop that I designed after seeing Daniel Lundgren use a strop like this that I had Tom make for me that he now sells called the long strop, where I brace one end against my chest and then I pull the knife towards me and push it away from me. Tom, his standard strops are tend to be just bench stone strops, so they're designed to rest on a table and then you make your passes that way. Now, there's a third way that I think might be perhaps most suitable to people. Uh, combining the, the benefits of the way I do it and some of the ease of doing it on a table. Which is where you rest one end on a table, but it really should be like, um, like a table up against something that's very heavy that won't move. So you can press into it a little bit. And the other end is in your hand, held up in the air at an angle. Right? So like, classic example would be if you have like a, if you're doing this at a workbench and you have like a, a vice on the workbench, press it into the base of the vice so that it's, you know, you're essentially creating a stop point. Or you could press it into the, your stump, actually. If your stump has the little divot like I talk about, that would be ideal. And what you get there is the ability to, um, it's not so fixed in space, so you, again, are shifting your focus to what is the connection between the blade and the strop surface, rather than am I doing this motion correctly, and you can make small adjustments to make sure that you are properly registered on the strop, and, but at the same time, it, of, it, is, it is easier on your wrists to do it this way, where one end is sort of braced against something, than to do it the way I use this long strop uh, in my body. So, I've seen someone who was a student of mine who came and tried to do it my way, raising against their body, but it was hurting their wrists. They then succeeded with this way, where they braced it against something and proceed to do it that way. Something about it allows your wrist to remain in a straight, neutral position. So much of spoon carving is figuring out the combination of how not to cut yourself, but also how to make cuts in a powerful manner or a consistent manner where your wrists can remain straight and strong because a lot of problems come from doing things where your wrists are sort of flopped over and cramped over. Um, it's really bad for your circulation and your and it pinches nerves and all that. So 
figuring out a way of doing it where your wrist can remain straight is important. So let's say you weren't going to buy one of Tom's drops and you wanted to make something out of horse butt leather. I would find some horse butt leather online somehow and order some. And then I would really do some poking around and think about what type of strop I wanted to try, whether it was a bench strop or a long strop or a paddle strop, which paddle strops are really designed to be used in this third way that I was describing where you brace one end, not just holding the thing in your fist and trying to strop against it. You, you have one end against something and one end in your hand, um, tilted up. And, and then I would, you know, the, the strop I just took part yesterday, it was, the leather was, looked like it was attached with rubber cement, which has its benefits and probably works well with thin leather. But if I was using something like horse butt leather, I would use epoxy, five minute epoxy. And you want to make sure that you spread your epoxy very evenly and then clamp the block sorry, clamp the leather to the backing block very firmly um, so that there are no lumps of glue underneath the leather because you don't want any bumps in the leather. And then, this is an important point, you want to put a chamfer on the edges of the leather because Whatever sticks up highest on the strop is going to be the thing that ultimately has the most effect on the edge of the knife. And if your strop has a sort of raised lip where the very edge curls up, as is often the case with a cut piece of leather, the lip will often be raised up slightly. I'm not quite sure why. Um, I think it just has to do with how it's sort of deflected when you cut it. At any rate, you want to remove that by chamfering the edge and perhaps sanding it down um, so that it does not uh, it that it has no effect on the edge of the knife as you are passing it along because remember the edge of the knife is going to pass over the edge of the strop at some point at every point of the edge of the knife I mean make a pass on a strop and you'll see what I mean because the handle's hanging off the end of the strop and you're making that pass, it's basically the whatever happens on the edge of the strop is what happens to the edge of the knife. And that's just that's just the deal. Now, I would encourage you to get two enough leather to make two different strops. One with the suede side up, which is say the underside of the leather facing up, and one that is just smooth leather. Now the smooth leather you're going to use without anything on it. Um, and in fact, kangaroo leather has quite a drag because it has a high silica content in it. So it does an extra good job of polishing just by itself. Um, the suede side, you're going to use a compound. Um, and I've tried paste compounds, a couple different ones. Ultimately, while they're easy to spread, I found them messier than using a, a crayon style compound. What Tom recommends, and he said that he's tried a whole bunch and I have not, so I'm going to take his word for it, is that the Veritas honing compound sold by Lee Valley Tools, come on Willa, is the cleanest, 
most aggressive cutting but cleanest on knife um, in terms of not getting everywhere compound that he's found. And um, I think it costs, I don't know, 15 bucks without shipping to get it a big, big bar from them. Um, and you only need a tiny little amount though. And the way to apply the crayon style compound is to do cross hatches. Watch one of the sharpening videos that I've done and I'll, I show how to do it. That was a big revelation for me. I used to just scribble on the compound like I was coloring in a coloring book. And what I didn't realize is that if you were to look at a cross section of that scribble under a microscope, the areas that got two or three or four scribbles were much higher than the areas that only got one scribble. And so they were affecting the knife blade in different ways. Certain areas were getting more, it was pushing, it was plowing into a mountain in some areas and sort of riding over, being lifted over a valley in other areas. So to avoid that, you apply this sort of loose cross section where each line is spaced a half an inch apart or so. And you go diagonally in one direction and then you go diagonally crossways the other direction. And that means that as the knife glides across the stropping surface, there is an even amount of stropping compound that it encounters at any given point. It also means that you use less compound. Now eventually, that will get glazed over, and you need to scrape it with either a sacrificial knife or a metal ruler or a bench scraper. Scrape off the old compound and apply fresh compound. But that's, you know, after, I don't know, 10, 20 stroppings. Don't just keep applying new compound on top of the glazed over stuff because it will impede the ability of the strop to do its job. We're going to talk about stropping hook knives after I talk about hook knives. So that's a whole other subject and uh, there are things that are important about that as well. For now, that's it about strops. And again, I recognize that the, the motion I describe is difficult to describe accurately. So watch a video to see that, but all of the other information here is actually perhaps better presented here in a podcast form um, than in a video form because there's nothing to demonstrate, it's just sheer information. Thanks for listening, guys.